you'd turn in your copy of the scriptures to Exodus chapter 2. I'm going to share a little story that has to do somewhat similar. Actually, it's a big stretch as a metaphor, but I thought it was a good praise thing. Of something being drawn out of the water. And we saw that this morning in the passage on from Exodus with Moses. But earlier this week, I had ordered a couple of boxes of uh, gospel tracts. And uh, they had come and they had been put in one of those cabinets along the street where you can get your mail out of that, where everybody, 10, 12 people share a uh, mailboxes. And uh, they had put them in there and we didn't know it. I hadn't picked it up. And the mailman came to our front step just so sad and, and apologetic and he had this box in his hand and it was just soaking wet. And it was just saturated. And our neighbors had put in a new lawn and the sprinklers actually pointed right onto the mailboxes and soaked it down good. And he was so apologetic and said, if I, I, I wasn't there Saturday or I would have brought it to your door. And he probably would have. But uh, Sherry called me up and said, oh, you wouldn't believe this. This box is here and it's just soaked. And uh, she opened it up. And lo and behold, as she opened it up, all the tracks were wrapped in plastic and not a single one was damaged. And so we praised God and told Sherry left a note for the mailman not to worry and everything had turned out okay. Now that really has nothing to do with Moses and I don't know how I could draw that in but <laughs> I just wanted to praise God for how he's taken care of us and uh, I want to encourage you to, to be praying on those times like Tuesday afternoon. We had many opportunities. We have some new tracks that I think a lot of you would like to use. We have one specific little thing that has all four of the Gospels in it that you can hand out. And uh, we'll be putting those at the back here in another week or so to where you can pick some of those up and take them with you if you'd like. So, as you can imagine, hearing the passage read in Nehemiah, thank you for doing that. Uh, this morning we're covering, covering chapter 2 of Exodus and I was thinking about this in a way it is going to be fairly fast because we're going to be moving really uh, geographically at a rate of th over 300 miles per hour. We are going to cover 691,200 hours in 60 minutes. So there's a lot of ground to cover here but this has some tremendous truths for us that can transform our witness for Christ and can show the glory of God to those around us. And it's amazing what God did at this time in history. Please pray with me and let's ask God to teach us. Heavenly Father, we are here this morning and, and you know, Lord, we need you to be able to understand your word. You have told us in your word that it is spiritually discerned and understood, Lord. Please take our weak and hard minds, our hard hearts, and soften them. And Lord, do amazing things, even miraculous things, to give us understanding of who you are. And that our lives would bring glory to you, Lord. That we would submit ourselves to you gratefully. And we'd surrender ourselves to you in every way. Please speak this morning, Father. Please speak in spite of me and uh, overcome my weaknesses. There is no weakness in Christ. And there is no weakness in your word. We pray that you would feed us and make us strong in you. Amen. I'd like to begin this morning and look at Exodus chapter 1 and 
review just briefly by reading it what Brad taught us last week. It was a wonderful start into the book of Exodus. And we need to get a little bit of the context and get some momentum as we head into what we're going to read this morning. So back in Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happened in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us and so go up out of the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shiphrah, and the name of the other Puah. And he said, When you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then you shall live. Then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore God dealt well well with the midwives. Then the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was, because the midwives feared God, that he provided households for them. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. So we saw, as Brad taught last week, everything that Pharaoh tried in an attempt to destroy the people of Israel, to get them in check, went the completely different direction. They just continued to multiply and grow. God is not thwarted by anything that man throws up in his way. This morning we get to this passage in Exodus chapter 2, And we have here where God brings a deliverer to these people. And he brings this deliverer in the midst of much calamity. It's a tremendously difficult time for these people. We start with verse 1 and we see the deliverer's heritage. He is a man of the house of Levi, went and took as a wife a daughter of Levi. And we read simply there that both man and wife were of the tribe of Levi. It was a tribe that God would eventually make to be priests of his people. Someday that tribe would function as the children of Israel's representatives to God. And Exodus chapter 6 verse 20 gives us some more detail about this couple. It says that the man's name, the husband, was Amram and the wife was Jochebed. So those are the parents of this child that will be born here. Amram and Jochebed. So the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. Now sometimes we think that's an isolated situation. That probably was going on throughout the area of Egypt. When they'd see their children, they they wouldn't take them and throw them in the river. 
Perhaps some did, but Israel was in panic. They were scrambling. What do we do? And this woman takes her child and hid him for three months. The child was born shortly after Pharaoh's edict from chapter 1, verse 22, where he said, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. At this point, the newly born child is like a thousand other sons born into this perilous time. We know there is much more that is to come, but Amram and Jochebed knew only that God had given them a beautiful baby boy. They don't know Exodus 2. They have no idea, really, what is going to happen here. The book of Hebrews gives us a glimpse of the fortitude of this couple's heart. Hebrews chapter 11. And I would encourage you, if you, you can tear off a little bit of the study guide or something, stick it in there in Hebrews 11, because we'll be looking at that several times this morning. Hebrews 11.23, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. That couple was not afraid of the Pharaoh himself. Now, a beautiful child can mean that there was something unusually special about this little guy, but the scriptures don't really tell us what that would have been. Literally, the translation is, she saw that he was good. All the mothers of sons I have known have seemed to feel this way about their child. Many mothers in that day, as well as this day, would have described their newborn saying, Ah, this is a beautiful child. So there's perhaps more to that, but we know that there is a love and affection, a, a, a connection between this mother and this boy. Now woven into the history of this birth, in the midst of dark circumstances, we witness here three women of great character. We begin with the courageous mother. Verse 3, When she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and lay it in the reeds by the river bank. We've got like a five-step plan here. First of all, what did she do? She hid him. And she hid him for a period of three months. But the hiding has run its course, and now something else needs to be done. So, it says that she made an ark. It, it's like a box, and it's made of bulrushes, which some of your translations probably say something like, papyrus reeds and it would have been reeds that grew down by the river and she wove these together as a wicker basket in the shape of a box now in order to make this water repellent and we don't know what she's going to do as we read this she's got this basket and now she takes tar and pitch and, and daubs it around it so it will be water repellent and not soak up so that it will float and then we read and she put the child in it she put the child in it and then she laid that ark in the reeds by the Nile River bank. She laid the ark in the, in the river itself. Now, what did Pharaoh had commanded? He had commanded that infant sons be thrown into the river. Jochebed didn't exactly cast the baby into the water, but she actually did place him in the Pharaoh's desired target, the River Nile. Now, move to center stage, two courageous young women the deliverer's sister. And his sister, which we believe that to be Miriam, stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Now what was probably going to be done to him 
was likely heartbreaking violence and death. What would happen? Yet somehow, perhaps God would intervene. Miriam, at the risk of her young life, stood as a faithful sentry to her little brother floating on the edge of the river. Now enters the murderer's daughter. She begins as curious. Verse 5. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. And her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. Could things turn any worse now for Jochebed and Miriam? What miserable timing. Why is she bathing now and why here? The murderous Pharaoh's own daughter now has the baby literally in her hands. But along with being curious, it turns out that she was very compassionate. And when she opened it, the basket, she saw the child. And behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Think about this. It was this compassionate child of the murderous king that God now uses to rescue a condemned Hebrew child. Her father had commanded these babies be thrown into the river to drown. Now his own daughter is pulling such a baby up out of the river. The executioner's child was delivering this child from drowning, from crocodiles, from Egyptian soldiers, and any other potential danger. A commentator by the name of Matro, or Motyer wrote this. Out of the core of the genocidal royal family came this precious person, a tender-hearted princess. Her father could, apparently without pity, consign sons to the Nile and daughters to slavery. But his own daughter had not inherited his personality. She had a maternal heart, eyes easily moved to tears, feeling for the feelings of others. And then God weaves these three women together. In the tapestry of his purpose, we have the courage and wisdom of the sister. Verse 7, Then his sister said to Pharaoh, excuse me, to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? Now the ESV study Bible uh, observes Miriam's valor and says, As someone from the population of slaves in Egypt, it took significant courage for Moses' sister to even presume to speak to the Pharaoh's daughter. But then we see the receptiveness of Pharaoh's daughter in verse 8. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. You know, we've read this so many times. We've heard this story. We kind of know the, what the responses are going to be. But, but again, realize when this took place, Miriam goes up there at the risk of her own life. She has no idea what's going to happen, whether she will be seen as an accomplice or a resource. What will this Pharaoh's daughter even do? And when she makes this offer, uh, the Pharaoh's daughter could say, forget it, kid, and thrown him back in. But no. The daughter says, go, go. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away, and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. Again, this is mind-boggling. Why doesn't she just say, okay, 
I got him. Take him. But don't let him show up again. Or something otherwise. But what does she do? She takes ownership of this child. That could only have been motivated because of God's spirit working in this woman to take this child and make her her own. She could have probably had any child she would have wanted in the whole kingdom of Egypt. But here is this little Hebrew baby in a tar-covered basket. She says, I want to make him my son. So take him and nurse him and I will give you your wages. So now with those two, Miriam and Pharaoh's daughter, we return to the mother. She comes in. And this amazing miracle, the Hebrew mother, Jochebed, receives three wonderful blessings that you can see right there before your eyes. First of all, the mother receives back her son. The child she perhaps would never see again has been brought back. Secondly, she has the joy of nursing and raising that child. A privilege she thought, could that ever be? And then thirdly, this is what caps it all off, is she not only gets those first two, but she's going to be paid to do them. She wasn't going to get, if they'd never found him, she wouldn't have gotten paid to raise and nurse this child. But now she's going to get support. She's going to be supported by the Pharaoh. Again, Watcher says, threatened by the king, the people in the river, Moses' mother took her son, put him in a little boat, and set it down in the shallow of the Nile, and the river was foiled of its prey. And in the process, a great god of Egypt was defeated. And we will see as we march through Egypt, this is the first of a long string of Egyptian idols and gods that will be defeated by God's people. Soon, however, this Levite mother must again give her son into the hands of that royal princess. In verse 10, we read, And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, Because I drew him out of the water. We have an exchange of mothers. And the child grew. Now how long did Jochebed have this beautiful son? Well, we don't know specifically, but rabbinic commentary says that it was probably around two years. Most of the Bible commentators will say that it was probably around three years. And they base that back on the fact that when Hannah had her son Samuel, she had him for three years and weaned him before she gave him back to the temple to leave to Eli the priest. So she was able to have her little boy for at least two, maybe three years. And then she gives him to the princess. And a new relationship has started. He is her son. He became her son. Now, this at least means that the daughter of the reigning monarch of Egypt cared for Moses as if he were her own. He became her son is obviously quite different than he became her servant, even her favored servant, or even her beneficiary. We don't know if she had other children. We really don't know if she was married or whether she married later. But we do know, by reason of this statement, became her son, that Moses would have received more attention and protection from the royal princess than any other man in that kingdom. Now the name the princess gave this boy is Hebrew, and it's for drawn out of the water. That also happens to be very similar to the Egyptian word son. 
Again, one of the commentators said, Embedded within the structure, we see the pervasive hand of God turning events to His purposes. We see also the irony of the situation. Pharaoh's plan of genocide included the preservation of daughters, but as things turned out, it was daughters who were its downfall. He, God, subjects all the power of the enemy to His own power. So the river cannot capture its prey. And even Pharaoh's house has changed from destroyer to deliverer. The amazing providence of God's sovereignty. When we pray this morning, we believed in that. And we continue to pray. Or else, if it wasn't for God's sovereignty, why? But believe this. This is such a beautiful story. It's such an amazing, complex weaving of events. The amazing providence of God's sovereignty it will always accomplish His will in 1500 B.C. and in 2023 A.D. Regardless of the roadblocks of the world and the attacks of the enemy, God will fulfill His purpose. And the prophet Isaiah wrote in chapter 46, Remember the former things of old. That's what we're doing. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. Saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Not most of it, but I will do all my pleasure. In Psalm verse two, chapter 2 he says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them, men like the Pharaoh, because... Proverbs 16, a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Even with the Pharaoh, he could plan his course, he could try strategies, but God would move the steps of his daughter down to the river that day to that spot and pick up the child that would eventually deliver them from him. But even Moses has to learn this lesson. Verse 11 now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens. And here we see a strange thing. God removes the deliverer. How and why would he do such a thing? Well, many times during Moses' life, he demonstrated a deep sense of justice. Certainly for his own people, but also among his own people. First of all, for his own people. Now it came to pass. Acts 7 verse 23 tells us, Now when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. So this is Stephen recalling the story of Moses from the Old Testament as he speaks at his martyrdom. He's about to be murdered. And he gives this beautiful message of the gospel from the beginning to Christ right there to his attackers and one of the things he does is he recites his story and he gives us some added information and tells us he was 40 years old at this point and it goes on to add here in verse 11 in Exodus when Moses was grown now this tells us something happened during that period of time it speaks of his training Acts 7.22 And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Philip Ryken states that we know that from the time of Pharaoh Tutmos III which would have been the middle of the 15th century BC it was customary 
for foreign-born princes to be reared and educated in the Egyptian court. The children of the nursery, they were called. And as a child of the nursery, Moses was trained in linguistics, mathematics, astronomy, architecture, music, medicine, law, and the fine art of diplomacy. As the son of Pharaoh's daughter, Moses would have been brought up through elite education and training and lived in the greatest luxury that the world had to offer. But we see something here after 40 years, 40 years of royal training, relationships with the powerful and the mighty, luxurious living, and immersion in the Egyptian culture, Moses still has a keen sense of where he came from. Says he went out among his brethren. As a people, he saw the brethren as his people. One of the commentators said, when Moses saw the misery of his own people as they slaved away for Pharaoh, their burdens became the burdens of his very own heart. Back in Hebrews chapter 11, it gives some color to that statement. It says, by faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He has left that identity. And instead, he saw himself as one of the people of God. Now, in this crucial moment, God places before Moses the brutal revelation and testing. Verse 11 goes on, And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he sees his people as a people, but he also sees a man, an individual. He knows that this is one of his brothers, an Egyptian beating one of his brethren. He witnessed in violent 3D brutality the crushing of a Hebrew man. So he looked this way and that way, and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now what do we make of that? The phrase, he looked this way and that way, and when he saw no one, that gives us at least two predicaments here. Either Moses was checking to make sure no one would witness him kill the man, or he was looking to see if there was anyone who would come to help and stop this injustice. At first glance, it may seem pretty obvious, but even Moses' next step does not really clear up his intention for us. The Hebrew word nacha, translated as killed, happens to be the same word describing the Egyptian beating the Hebrew. And in the very next verse, when the Hebrew man is striking another Hebrew word, another man, nakha is again used for that striking. Three times the word is used with different outcomes in these two verses. Again, Stephen in Acts describes this encounter in a way that gives Moses an honorable intention. He says, And seeing one of them suffer wrong, one of his brothers suffering wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. So he had a heart for him. He saw him as suffering, so he defended, he avenged, and he took care of the man who was being oppressed. And he struck down that Egyptian. And Stephen goes on to say that Moses thought this act would give the Hebrews confidence in his leadership. Acts 7.25 For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand. But they did not. Once the murder is over, Moses realizes he is done for. He would be seen as siding with the despicable slaves. And even in a case of injustice, this would enrage the Egyptian monarchy. Hoping to cover up the evidence, Moses hides the Egyptian's body in the sand. But Moses also 
was very sensitive to injustice among his own people. We see then, and he went out the second day, immediately after. And behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the one who did the wrong, Why are you striking your companion? And it's that same word, nakah. Stephen goes on and explains it this way. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? You see, Moses desired to deliver his people from oppression, but he also had a strong sense of wanting to build them together, to reconcile them to each other, and to see unity. He wanted to be there as a peacemaker. But any hopes of making peace and justice were collapsing quickly. He now experiences rejection from every side. The rejection by his own people in verse 14. Then he, this man, one of them who was attacking said, Well, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. Who made you a prince and a judge over us? He asked. In time God would, but that time had not yet come. News travels fast, and the short-lived cover-up is over. And now comes rejection of Egypt. Verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh, taking matters into his own hands to deliver his brethren, actually delayed the deliverance of his people for another 40 years. Moses would not set foot in Egypt for four decades. To put it another way, Moses at that point was only 40 years old. He would have to spend another elapsed lifetime, another 40 years, in a completely different life and how different it would be. He went to dwell in the land of Midian and he sat down in a well, sat down by a well. Midian was a trek of over 300 miles from Egypt. Can you guys bring that up? Midian was a trek of over 300 miles from Egypt through desolate desert terrain. The red circle on this map shows the region where he fled to. The people here, the Midianites, are actually descendants of Abraham like he was. But it was through his wife, Abraham's wife Keturah. In Genesis chapter 25, we see that Abraham married Keturah following the death of his first wife, Sarah. The Midianites, they were a nomadic group of shepherders. They and their sheep existed throughout a wide range of that vast area there that's encircled. Now water wells. Water wells were interesting places in the Old Testament. Abraham dug many of them. They were fought over. They were stopped up. They were re-dug. But they seemed to be a place of romance. Abraham's servant met Isaac's future wife, Rebekah, at the well in the city of Nahor in Mesopotamia. Her display of overwhelming servanthood and watering his camels clinched the deal, and he brought her back to marry his master's son, Isaac. At the well in Haran, Jacob met his future wife, Rachel, where as a hardworking shepherdess, she had brought her father's sheep to the well. Jacob was stunned by this young woman. And loved her instantly. But unfortunately for Jacob, he had to work another seven years for her father before he could have her hand in marriage. So perhaps we could have seen this coming. Verse 16, now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. 
And they came and drew water. And they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. But first, a rescue. A rescue from injustice. Now this has become the theme of Moses' life. But so far, things have, t- have not turned out very good. Verse 17, Then the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. Now this evidentially was not, evidently was not unusual. We listen to the girls report to their father in verse 18. When they came to Raul, their father, he said, How is it that you have come so soon today? First of all, the father's name here is Raul. It means friend of God. And in Exodus 3, he will be known as Jethro. In this introduction to Raul, there isn't much to go on regarding his spiritual life. The clearest indication of who he is and what he believes are seen in these excerpts from Exodus 18. Then we will see Jethro or Raul back in the picture here. But for a moment, we'll go to Exodus 18. And there we read that Jethro or Raul, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and other sacrifices to offer to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. And then in verse 21, Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men such as fear God. This is Jethro's advice to Moses. Pick men who fear God, able men, men of truth, hating covetousness. So evidently he was a man who knew the living God, Yahweh, who knew the God of his grandfather, Abraham. But then the girls answer their father, and they say, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. And he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. So he said to his daughters, And where is he? Why is it that you have left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Raoul realized that this young man is owed some appreciation. And perhaps he also hoped that the fellow might be a potential suitor for one of his seven daughters. Regardless, Moses is invited to the home and things come together from there. The reward for Moses? A new home, a new occupation, a new wife, and even more. Verse 21. Then Moses was content to live with the man. And he gave Zipporah his daughter to Moses. And she bore him a son. And he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. It's an interesting word there, content. Strong says it is the idea of mental weakness. To yield, even to be slack. It's almost the idea of resignation. Another word study book says this verb is to make a volitional decision to commence a given activity. What we seem to sense here is that Moses had a bold start, didn't he? With great qualifications and a tremendous platform from which to minister. But after running into some severe roadblocks, he decided the obscure life of a shepherd in the wilderness was to be his lot in life. From a practical standpoint... That would be a whole lot easier than being hunted down by the government and despised by the people you were trying to help. Whatever dreams he had of being a deliverer of the people of God seemed to fade further and further from sight over the next 40 years that he spent in the Midianite wilderness herding sheep. We're also introduced here to Zipporah. We don't see much about her here, but she will be a lifesaver for Moses 
in Exodus chapter 4. Very important woman. And then the son Gershom, a name that means I have been a stranger in a foreign land. Just as Moses considered himself to be a stranger in that land of Egypt. Now as important as all this was, and it was or would not been, have been recorded by Moses, nor would have been inspired by the Spirit of God, there was a whole lot more going on with God's people than simply Moses' life. The book of Exodus is sometimes called the second book of Moses. It is easy to be swept up into the drama of Moses' life. But he was sent for a purpose. He is a prophet deliverer. But he is a prophet sent to speak to God's covenant people. And he is a deliverer to rescue God's children of the promise. While things have calmed down for Moses, life has become unbearable for the Hebrews of Egypt. Forty years have passed since Moses fled to Midian. And things have gone from bad to worse back in Egypt. In Egypt, Moses had been filled with the righteous hatred of, in, of injustice. But, think of what he did. He utilized his own skill and strength. His had been a work of righteousness. Seeking the salvation of his brethren through his own power. He would find that was not necessary, nor was it God's plan. He could never have imagined, could, could he ever have imagined, that without a single weapon or a single blow, he would be used by God not to wipe out one slave master, but to wipe out the entire Egyptian army, including Pharaoh himself. May we learn from Moses. May we learn from Moses not to be rash in going our own way. Wait on the Lord. And follow him. Isaiah 55 verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Nor are your ways my ways says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth. So are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. We do not know how God will move. But he will move. Psalm 37 4. Delight yourself in the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him. And he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light. And your judgment as a noonday. Who will do it? He will do it it says. Verse 7. Rest in the Lord. And wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way. Because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. Follow God. Trust him. We know that during that 400 years, many generations came and went. Sometimes we cry out and we ask God and, and we're so disappointed it doesn't happen tomorrow or next week or next year. I would guess many of you have prayers that you have prayed for years. I have pray, prayers that I've been praying for several years. But God still hears and His timing is perfect. Meanwhile, back in Egypt, it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage and they cried out and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. God will respond to his children. The people of God 
are under crushing bondage. They groan because of the heavy bondage and their cry comes up to God because of their bondage. Bondage, bondage, bondage. As harsh as it, as harsh it, has, as it has been, that bondage has moved them to desperation. And from desperation, they have been moved to God. Verse 24, So God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. Those two verses, uh, I'm going to see a lot of, I'm sure as we go through Exodus, it will be my favorite. But right now, I love those. Isn't that amazing? So God heard their groaning. Things are going to change. God remembered His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel. And God acknowledged them. Chapter 2 finishes with the conversation of the children with their father. The desperate hurting children. In verse 23 we read that they would groan. They would moan. Verse 23 goes on. They cried out. It's the word za'ak. And it means to shriek. Shriek from pain. Shriek from anguish. From danger. And then in verse 23, it goes on to say, And they cried out for help. This is the turning point that ignites the response of God. The ESV translation says, The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Shavah. It's a Hebrew verb and it describes the cry of anguish, the cry of oppression, the cry of those who are approaching the breaking point. You see their screams in anguish and moaning in despair now becomes something even much deeper. It becomes a prayer to their God. When they desperately turn from agonizing groaning and cries of real pain to crying out to Yahweh for help, then the scripture records that their plea rose up to God. It is not the people's loud volume or their deep emotion and tears or the amount of physical suffering that lift their cries to the ears of God. It is when we and they despair of this world and its answers and its attacks and we cry out to God in desperation with no hope but Him. David's song of deliverance uses this word in 2 Samuel 22.7 In my distress... I called upon the Lord. Yes, I cried to my God. And from His temple, He heard my voice. And my cry for help, Shabbat, came into His ears. And the next three Psalms are from the NASB translation. Psalm 18.6 In my distress, I called upon the Lord. And He cried and cried to my God for help. He heard my voice out of His temple. And my cry for help, Shabbat, before him came into his ears. Psalm 34, 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. And his ears are open to their shavah, their cry. Psalm 145. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their shavah and will save them. It is a very full, complete word. It means to cry out for help to God. To depend upon him. The cry to Yahweh for help then leads them in verse 24. It says that their groaning is now being heard by God. Because it is aimed at God. The sovereign God responds. And we see sort of five angles of response here at the very last. It says that cry came up to him. 
It rose up to him. It says God heard their groaning. That means he understood what they were experiencing. Psalm 34, excuse me, 4 verse 3 says the Lord will hear when I call to him. Psalm 34 again, the righteous cry out and the Lord hears. And then we see in verse 24 it goes on that God remembered his covenant. Had he forgotten it? No, he had not forgotten it. What that word means is that he marked it out and he brought it to the forefront for the people to know. This would be the why and the how he would respond to his people throughout this book of Exodus. God remembered that covenant. In the sovereign perfect providence of God, he lifts his covenant up to the center. He will not forget his promise to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12 verse 2, he said to him, I will make you a great nation. He was nothing. He was nothing but a wandering man trying to follow God. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Again he spoke those same covenant words to Isaac in Genesis 26. And then to Jacob in Genesis 35. Each time God presented his covenant he promised his people a literal territory of land. That had not happened in Exodus chapter 2 yet. And he promised them a thriving multitude of a nation. That they were becoming. In fact, they were thriving so much. And as Brad pointed out on chapter 1, what was the main sense you had of Pharaoh and the people of Egypt? They were afraid. They were terrified of what was happening with these Hebrew people. Everything they tried was thwarted and the people continued to grow. God had made them into a thriving nation. And then he says that they would be a source of blessing to the world. And we see that in many ways in the Old Testament. But we also know that that was a promise of a shadow and a type that would come later. Who would bless every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. All nations of the earth would be blessed through the Messiah, through the Son of God. Verse 25, it says, God looked upon the children of Israel. It means to gaze upon, to perceive what is happening. And then it says, God knew them. God acknowledged them. That is a tremendous way to end this chapter. God saw the people of Israel and he knew. Yada, this word, often translated to know, has a wide range of meaning. It can be an acquaintance that you know. It can be a skill that you know. It can be a deep relationship that a person has in knowing God. It is even used to describe the intimate physical union of a man and a woman. So the context is the key to what does this word mean in verse 25. And in this moment we have the sense that God has brought himself into the deep suffering of his people. And he is about to respond to their cry for help. They are broken. And they are crying out to him. He knows their pain and suffering. And he will respond. Mautier again said this. He said, surely God can be left without our help to attend to this on his own. Surely in this matter of his central providential care and saving plans for his people, he needs no prompting. Yet the Bible says we must pray. And we must pray. And we must cry out to him. In conclusion, from this chapter that is so chock full, 
pray that we will be men and women of God who wait upon God. We believe in and we trust in his sovereignty. And we live that way with full confidence in our God. Patiently trust in the sovereignty of God. Secondly, patiently wait on God's ways and timings. Don't take matters into our own hands. I have done that way too many times. Impatiently wanting a land or impatiently wanting this this possession or impatiently wanting this position or whatever it might be. So many times. Patiently wait and let God open it. Who could have written a story like this for God to save his deliverer by putting him in the hands of the Pharaoh's daughter? The Pharaoh was trying to kill him. God, God needs no help on the creativity side. We need help on the trust side. Wait on God's ways and timings. And then thirdly, as you can probably imagine, let us be, be people who cry out to God for help. Cry out to Him. Cry out to Him for the things that were mentioned this morning. Cry out to Him for your lost children, relatives, neighbors. Cry out to Him for those who are suffering. Cry out to Him for our missionaries overseas and the churches there and, and the people that have come to Christ there that are young babes in Christ under all sorts of threats and difficulties. But cry out. Cry out to God. Let us be his people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And I pray that your spirit will work to reveal yourself to each one of us through this chapter. Father, I pray that this morning you will have spoken and you will continue to speak and you will draw men and women back to your word to dig and to, to mine the gold, the riches that are there, to see the Lord of glory. And Father, I pray that whether it's at a manufacturing plant, at a co-op, teaching my children, teaching our children in the home, at a, at a shopping center, wherever we are, Lord, that we would desire to glorify you at every moment in every way possible. Lord, may... May this small group of people be lights in the darkness of this world. Please use us, Lord. And please teach us more as we go through Exodus now to see your glory. We owe you everything. Your son, Jesus Christ, made all the difference for eternity. Lord, please, in addition, lead many in our congregation to repent and follow Jesus. Thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.